It's This American Life from WBEZ Chicago, distributed by Public Radio International. And today's show begins with a question that somehow independently popped up in the heads of five different people all around the same time. The people were Caitlin Kenny, Dave Kestenbaum, Alex Bloomberg, Jacob Goldstein, and Adam Davidson. All of them cover economics for our show and for NPR News as part of the Planet Money Project. It was in November of 2008. Yeah, it was in December of 2008. It was in the heart of the financial crisis. Lehman Brothers went bust. You were hearing on the news every day all these like crazy numbers. You know, X trillion dollars lost when the housing bubble popped. A trillion dollars disappeared from the stock market this week. My family members, my wife, my friends, you know, people were just asking me, where did that money go? Who got it? You know, was there a black hole it went into? Was there a, a big fire somewhere which burned up a lot of dollar bills? Like, where did, the, where did the money go? I spent a long time thinking about that. All these reporters but Adam were pretty new to reporting on money and finance at the time. And that last reporter you heard, Kestenbaum, went online and bought some play money so he could run little scenarios, pretending that person A took out a loan from person B to buy a house from person C to try to understand where all the money went when all the housing prices collapsed. Jacob, meanwhile, went to dinner with an aunt of his. My aunt is an MBA and was a very successful businesswoman and made a lot of money and and. I actually asked her because this idea that trillions of dollars could disappear from the stock market was confusing to me. And so I said, where did all that money go? And she said, money is fiction. Yeah. What, what does that mean? Uh, well, <laughs> it, I guess it was the fact, like it would have been one thing if like, you know, a yoga teacher or something said that to me. But this is like my businesswoman ant money is fiction so the answer to the question where did the money go when the housing market collapsed turns out to be that the money never existed in the first place all those houses used to be worth a certain amount and now they were worth a lower amount simply because that's what everyone now agreed no money changed hands no money vanished same with retirement funds and stock portfolios. Alex says that this is when he realized with a start that nowhere was safe. If there were inflation even sitting in the bank, all his money's value could just slowly vaporize. Money is not solid. Its value could disappear. And all these reporters say that after that, they would be working on what seemed like perfectly ordinary stories, asking straightforward questions. And they would bump up against this weird fictional quality that money has. For example, Kestenbaum says he was doing a story and he came upon this. One question is, um, how much money is out there in dollars? You think we track that among all things, right? Mm-hmm. And yet it's a really uh, complicated question to answer. Why is that so complicated? Well, you can imagine trying to answer it by asking everybody, like, how much money do they have? So you open your wallet. There's cash in there, right? And then you'd also probably add your checking account and your savings account, right? Mm-hmm. But the money in your checking account and your savings account, the bank is a bank, right? What it does is it takes that money in, your money, and then it loans it out to some guy who wants to open a, you know, a shoe shining store down the street. Mm -hmm. So he's holding your cash. Oh, right. So the question is, how do you count that money without double counting it? Are you counting me having it or are you counting him having it? 
So like, how do you how do you handle that? And it gets really complicated because think of that guy who's opening that store who borrowed the money, right? He's going to pay someone to make a sign for him. That person's going to deposit some of that money in the bank. The bank's going to then loan that out to somebody else. In, in fact, if you look in the textbooks, there's a little footnote saying, sorry, we had to do a little math here, and then tell you how to sum an infinite series. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob says that he just figured our money works this way because we're a complicated industrial society with banks and stock markets and financial instruments of all kinds. And then he read something that made him realize that, no, 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 the fictional quality of money is inherent in the very idea of money in any system of currency, no matter how simple. This aha moment came to him when he was reading this book from 1910 about an island called Yap in the South Pacific. At the time on this island, for currency... This pre-industrial people use something completely impractical and counterintuitive, these massive stone sculptures in the shape of coins. And I mean massive. They're huge. The, the biggest ones are, are, are taller than a man. You know, they, they weigh more than a car. And they use them for big things, right? They wouldn't use them for little everyday purchases. You'd use it for a dowry or like this anthropologist told me, if somebody from your village got killed in another village and you wanted to get his body back like a warrior... You might uh, use one of these stones to pay the other village to get your warrior's body back. Right. Uh, so, so there's this obvious problem, right? There's no machinery. These things weigh thousands of pounds. So they, they have this essentially an innovation, right? It's really a financial innovation, which is you don't have to actually have the stone to own the stone. The stone, like, you know, it's sitting on a path or something, and everybody just knows that, that I own it one day. And then you, 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 Ira, you, you know, you kill the warrior from my village, and I'm like, okay, I want to pay you with this stone, and you give me back my warrior. I get the warrior back. The stone doesn't have to move. It just sits there on that path. But now everybody knows that's Ira's stone. I don't own it anymore. But Jacob says it gets even more interesting to understand this next point, you have to know first that the limestone that they used to make these giant sculpture coins, it wasn't actually found on Yap. They had to go to another island 250 miles away to make them. And these guys are going out in these little bamboo boats to some other island where they're carving these, these giant limestone discs. A at one point, a, a crew had gone and cut one of these giant stones on this island, and they were bringing it back across the sea. And and just before they got back to Yap, there was some kind of storm. And so they had to cut the stone loose or the stone went overboard or something. In any case, the stone ended up on the bottom of the sea. The crew themselves survived. They made it back to the island and they told everybody what had happened. And the people of Yap said, that's that's fine. That's no problem. We believe you. And this, this stone money, this giant stone on the bottom of the sea, it exists. It's still good money. Somebody owns that stone even though it's sitting on the bottom of the ocean. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's like – it, but it, it makes sense, right? I mean, the, the, you know, one reaction is like, oh, my God, these people are crazy. But but it's, a, it's like a logical extension of what they're already doing. In fact, Jacob says it's not logically different from what we do. For money, after all, long ago, we used to use gold. And if you wanted to buy something, you'd have to carry around these heavy, shiny pieces of metal. Then we decided, no, let's just leave the gold in a bank. Instead of the gold, what we're going to carry around are these pieces of paper. And the paper on them says, yes, there's gold. You can take this paper money to a bank. You can swap it for gold. Maybe you 
obscene old dollars that say on them, promise to pay the bearer so many dollars in gold, you could swap it. Then we decided, it was the year 1933, we decided you can't trade in dollar bills for gold anymore in this country. Dollar bills are just going to represent the idea of money. That's it. Not gold. They're just money. And when I talked about this with Jacob, he said it gets even more abstract. Because now, if you think of most of the money that you have or most of the money that I have, it's never currency, right? I get paid. That is just a direct deposit from NPR, from my, you know, from my employer to, to my checking account. I never, it's not like they give me a bunch of $100 bills every week. And then, you know, I, I pay my bills online. So currency even now is like old fashioned. You know, you don't have to touch money. You don't have to see it. It's just information. You know, until this conversation, it never occurred to me that money doesn't change hands when when we pay our bills online or anything. Like, it, it, like it, I don't know why. I never even stopped to think, right, at no point does the bank go and deliver like $100 to the phone company on my behalf. It really is just numbers going back and forth in the computer. Yeah, I mean... The- Nothing happens in the physical world, right? I mean, I guess, except uh, electrical pulses, I guess it would be flying back and forth between computers, right? Like, the money doesn't really exist. There's Not only is there no gold, there aren't even bills for, for most of the money that exists. Most of the money that exists is just the idea. It's just the bank saying, yes, there is this much money in your account. Well, today on our program, the most stoner question we have ever posed in our show, what is money? That's right. What is money? That's the question we're asking. I know how it sounds. The fact that the money that we use every day is about as real as those stones at the bottom of the sea, that makes our lives easier in all kinds of ways, but it is also incredibly dangerous that that is the nature of money, as you'll hear today in two action-filled acts. When you understand that money is created out of nothing, you understand all kinds of things. Stay with us. Act one, the lie that saved Brazil. Well, let's begin with a trip to a country where the fiction that is money, that fiction, that that set of shared beliefs that is a fiction, completely fell apart. Everyone stopped believing in their currency. And, of course, that had disastrous results. The same country, in a truly incredible piece of policymaking, you almost never hear of any government anywhere solving a problem so thoroughly and so well. The government tricked 150 million people into believing again that their money was worth something when there was absolutely no evidence to support that claim. And it worked. Here's Hannah Jaffe Walt. When you know the story I'm about to tell you, it really makes every single mundane commercial experience in Brazil seem like a complete miracle. Car commercials, miracle. The mall is a miracle. The guy in a bright red t-shirt in the mall who shoves paperwork into my hands and offers me a credit card, miracle. The credit card is a brand new concept in Brazil. And actually, everything that happens in this mall is new. The way everyone spends money in the mall is new. You can walk away with new shoes or a new backpack today and pay for it later. So a soccer ball in two installments. Any any shoes, the average is six installments. So a backpack... Six installments. Todos os produtos. All products. Everything? Yeah. Todos. As I said that, everything, I was holding up a pair of sunglasses off of his display. 
Yes, he told me. Six payments. Take them home today. Pay in six monthly installments later. In the past, you never would have had this because Brazil had incredibly high inflation. In 1990, inflation in Brazil was 80% a month. Not a year, a month. So think about those sunglasses. Say they're selling for $10. One month later, with 80% inflation, the price is $18. Six months later, the sunglasses are $340. And by the end of the year, the price tag reads more than $10,000. Brazilians lived with high inflation like this for decades. They could not figure out how to fix it. And they might still be living with it if it weren't for some unlikely heroes. Actually, the most unlikely group of national heroes you can imagine, four former drinking buddies from grad school with a crazy plan who were suddenly put in charge of the country's biggest economic crisis ever. But before we meet them and hear their story, let's talk about the way it used to be. So remember, prices were going up every day. Think about what that actually means in the supermarket. They had to change the prices every day. Caetano Ferrare, this flirtatious 75-year-old in Sao Paulo, remembers that that was someone's job, to walk the aisles and change the prices. There's a guy who changed the sticker. Blah, 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 blah. You you pass the guy, (laughs) and you buy things. Wait, you would walk by the guy? You would, like, get in front of him? You run. In front of him? In front of the guy and buy things like that. So that you could get to the goods before he changed the price? Yes, like that. In the whole day, this this machine doing this. This is Maria Leopoldina Bierenbeck, someone with a very Brazilian long name who spent a lot of time in supermarkets during this period. Maria was a housewife with four kids. She wasn't the running type. She'd politely ask the sticker man to stop and wait. And if he didn't, she had another trick. She'd pull off his new sticker, walk up to the register, and pay the old price. But then they discovered the maquininha, the small machine. And that you couldn't do anything because it printed the price. That, that wasn't easy to take off. Brazil's problem with inflation started all the way back in the 1950s. The president wanted to build a massive city in the middle of the jungle, a new capital, Brasilia. It would cost a lot of money, and the government didn't have the money to do it. So it did what governments often do when they have a dream they can't afford. They essentially printed the money, created it. Now, the problem with doing this, of course, is inflation. If there's, say, $100 in the economy, you create 100 more. Now every dollar is worth half as much. That's inflation. And in Brazil, inflation continued for the next five decades. Year after year, Brazilian money was worth less and less. And this causes all sorts of problems, not just with the sticker man. Say you get a $1,000 bonus at work. You put that money in a drawer, a year later it's worth a fraction of what it was. The minute you get paid, the clock is ticking on your money. I talked to one man who used to have nightmares about money sitting on top of his dresser, sitting still, just losing value. A beer manufacturer told me he just stopped making beer because making beer just takes too long. You'd buy all the wheat and the hops, and by the time it was brewed, everything was worth so much less. 
By the late 80s, inflation was the number one political issue. And so began the plans to fix it. Now, it turns out one of the best people to talk to about this is Maria Leopoldina Bjerenbeck, the housewife who peeled off the stickers. Maria can take you through a detailed history of each president's failed plan to stop inflation. But you have to ask Maria every question twice, because the first time, she always answers like this. I don't know, because I never had to do anything. I was just a plain housewife mother. And then proceeds to be the most knowledgeable person you will speak to on the topic. Okay, so first up, she says, President Sarney in 1985. His solution? Simple. Businesses are raising prices. Make that illegal. There was a price freeze. The problem with that was no one wanted to sell anything at the frozen price. All the merchants were just waiting for the day when prices would eventually go up again. And you know what happened? People hid the merchandise. <laughs> and you, you couldn't buy anything because they wanted the, the prices to, to grow up because the situation was uh, a fantasy. It was not real. You, you couldn't find uh, meat at the butcher's. Because they weren't, they just weren't buying meat to sell. Why couldn't you? Buy they meat? hid the cattle. So they hid the cattle, waiting for the yes. price freeze to go away. Yes. Really? Yes. You can do that here. It's a very large country. So that failed, and then came President Kohler in 1990. He had a plan to solve inflation, but there was one catch: you're not going to be able to take your money out of the bank for a while. Now, Maria is telling me this, and my translator, Flavio Ferreira, who was sitting in on our conversation, could no longer keep quiet. He remembers that moment when the Minister of Finance made the announcement. And I remember the day when she was on TV explaining that they were going to confiscate everybody's money. So next days, banks would not uh, work. I remember the face of that woman. She had studied in the best schools, and she had been a, a professor at USP, and she was explaining to the nation, as an economist, why we need this to, to, to end inflation. We need the country to be, you know, together with us. But I remember I looked at her and said, God, a government cannot do that. I mean, when, when a government does that... You lose, you lose people's respect. Oh, it was terrible, wasn't it? It was terrible. So many people uh, committed suicide, you know. When you mess with people's money, it doesn't go well. The economy went off a cliff. President Kohler was impeached. And there was a new president and a new finance minister. And inflation kept rising. The Brazilian economy was at a low point. It looked like there was nothing to be done to fix it. Enter our heroes, those four economists we talked about at the beginning, who basically enter the picture now because the new finance minister knew nothing about economics, which is why on March 27th of 1993, he called one of our heroes, Edmar Basha. Oh, I was, I was, I was in, in uh, my office at that university here, at the Catholic University, and I got a call soon after I had finished uh, teaching a class, you know. And he said, uh, well, uh, i just been named the finance minister. You know that I don't know any economics. So uh, please uh, come to meet me in Brasilia tomorrow. We need you. Well, I was terrified. 
Basha had been waiting for three decades for this call, ever since he and his three friends taught graduate school together at the prestigious Catholic University in Rio. Four friends who had been studying Brazilian inflation for a decade. Four buddies at the campus bar complaining to each other about how this government didn't know what it was doing and that government didn't know what it was doing. Four buddies who were now being asked by the government to come and fix things their way, the plan they'd spent years on. And so, of course, their first answer? No. We don't want to. Here's another one of the four, Andre Lara. This is a, a, this is a process. It's something that requires many years. It's not something that we can do. It's not a magic. It's not a trick that we do overnight. When I asked Lara, wasn't it exciting, though? He looked confused for a moment and then scornful. People, he told me, should be interested in ideas, not feelings. They thought we had a trick. There is no trick. There is only long, hard, complex, multi-step macroeconomic plans designed specifically for the Brazilian context. Basha is the more casual of this pair. Yeah, he tells me, we had a trick. But I was busy, and I didn't want to move to Brasilia. The government did not give up. Lara and Basha were taken to dinner with members of parliament who told them how much the country needed them. They got calls at home. Senators told them, you will have free reign, whatever you think is best. Basha was invited to meet the president. And then I asked him an autograph for my kids. And then he wrote a, a note, a note for it, like, addressed to my two kids and saying, please tell your father to work fast for the benefit of the country. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he wrote in the autograph? Yes, yes, I still have that note. <laughs> so there was a lot of pressure. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You know, it's one thing to do it uh, at your office. It is the other thing to put the thing together, right? <laughs> it had never, never been put in practice anywhere this way. Eventually, the four signed on and presented their plan. And basically what they said was, you have to hit the underlying causes of inflation. You have to stop the printing presses, stop creating money so quickly. But you also have to stabilize people's faith in money. And this is where their plan was different. They didn't want to just change the underlying causes of inflation. They wanted to change people themselves. People were the problem. People had to be tricked into thinking money had value when all signs told them that was absolutely not true. So, Basha says, they wrote a plan for a new currency, one that was stable, dependable, trustworthy. The only catch was, this currency would not be real. It would not be printed. There would never be coins. It was fake. They called it a virtual currency. Uh, we call the unit of real value, URV, yes. Yeah, it was a virtual, it didn't exist, in fact. People would still have cruceros, the local currency, in their pockets. But when they got paid, their wages would be listed in URVs. Taxes were in URVs. And all prices were listed in URVs. And URVs were stable. And so, for example, when you went to the store and bought some milk... How much does it cost? You say, well, now we have, it costs X, let's say, one URV. Well, how much is that? Because I cannot pay you without URV. So, well, I have this little table here. And today's value of URV in cruzeiros is seven cruzeiros per URV. So it costs one URV, seven cruzeiros. You pay seven cruzeiros. You go next week, well, it's still 
one URV. But then you, you say, well, how, many, how, how many cruzeros? You look, well, well, 14. Every night, the central bank would put out a memo with the official conversion rate, and a table would get printed in the newspaper. The store clerk could look at the table in the newspaper and see, Monday, one URV is equal to seven cruceros. Tuesday, 12 cruceros. Wednesday, 14. Milk, or whatever it was you were buying, would stay the same price. There was no need for the sticker man. And the idea was you would start thinking in URVs. Because just last week you got paid 1,000 URVs. Milk costs one URV. Next month, you'd get 1,000 URVs again. And milk would still be one URV. The exchange into cruceros, what you actually handed the clerk, would change. But the price in URVs would not. So that was the plan. Basha presented it to the senator from Sao Paulo. And then when I explained to him the plan, you know, he, after a while, you know, he said, well, with some anguish in his voice, said, well, Basha, if this is the only way that uh, you tell me that it can be done, then we will follow you to the precipice. <laughs> and so the four economists went about explaining to the country that everyone should now talk in a virtual currency. We didn't understand what it was. Uh, we asked, uh, how much is that? Oh, so many urfs. I, I used to say it was a fantasy because, <laughs> because it, it was a, uh, not real. Still, people used it without being forced to. One store would be selling milk for one URV, and eventually all the stores would be. People would know that's an appropriate price for milk, which I can tell because I get paid 1,000 URVs. Inflation began to go down, 80% a month to 50%. It even got close to 40 And then when we are satisfied that prices were relatively in good synchrony, we declare, well, from this day, the virtual currency becomes a real currency. The Cruzeiro Real is going to disappear. And everyone is going to receive from now on its wages and pay all for all the prices in the new currency, which is the real, which is equal to one URV and, 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 and also equals to one dollar. And that's, that, that is the trick. It wasn't the only trick. While they put the URVs in place, the group of four also made the government balance its budget and slow down on the money creation. And then, one day, July 1st, 1994, the central bank deployed truckloads of new cash in this new currency, the real, to banks in the cities, to the provinces, and waited on the ready for the four economists to say, go. And I remember, you know, the day, the day that we launched in the real, I had this journalist you who know, had become a friend of mine, and then she came to me and said, the professor... Do you swear that inflation is going to end tomorrow? I said, yes, I swear that's going to end tomorrow. <laughs> we were in awe. Everybody was very happy. <laughs> Everyone in Brazil, collectively, as a country, tricked themselves into believing that this fake currency was real. More real than the actual physical bill they were holding in their hands. And that made all the difference. That made it real. For money, it's crazy, but that's all you need, people to believe in it. 
Our four heroes literally turned Brazil's economy in the opposite direction with their plan. Brazil went from being an irrelevant economic basket case to one of the most important economies out there, the eighth largest in the world. Cardoso, the finance minister who hired our four heroes after admitting he knew nothing about economics, was elected president. Twice. And the four economists, despite the fact that most people don't know them by name, really are seen as heroes. These guys made money worth something. Almost everyone I talked to about what happened in 1994 when they got the Real described it as magic. Which you'd think the four would like. But Lara does not appreciate decades of research being referred to as magic. There's nothing magical in UAV. <laughs> it's very technical and very... But basically, it was just reestablished the idea of a, of a unit of account that gives you uh, the sense of value, relative value. Basha, on the other hand, doesn't mind it so much. It's very funny, you know, because people today, you know, that uh, you, you go around and uh, people think that this is so natural to live in a country without inflation. <laughs> it's so natural that now when you walk into a store in Brazil, instead of a sticker man raising the prices, you can walk out of that store with your sunglasses in hand and not finish paying for them until six months later. In just 20 years, Brazilians have gone from an absolute faith that their currency has no value to an absolute faith that its value will never change. Hannah Jaffe-Wald. Coming up, we go to a place where no journalist has been. This room inside the Federal Reserve that is like a financial black hole where the normal rules of money do not apply. That's in a minute. Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. It's American Life from Ira Glass. Each week on our show, of course, we choose a theme, bring you different kinds of stories on that theme. Today's show, The Invention of Money. We have stories today about the fictional quality of money, how it gets made out of nothing, and what's great about that, and all the trouble that can get us into. We've arrived at Act 2 of our show, Act 2, Weekend at Bernanke's. When the United States was on a real gold standard, it was clear what money was and how much money there was. Each dollar corresponded to a dollar of gold that was in a vault somewhere. But when we went off the gold standard, somebody had to decide how much money there would be. Some entity had to be entrusted with that power. In our country and just about every modern country today, we give that power to something called a central bank. Our central bank is named the Federal Reserve. You've heard that name probably. And like all central banks, it has one magical power. The Federal Reserve can create money anytime it wants. It's the one institution in America that can decide, OK, the economy would run better, interest rates would drop, whatever. If there was more money out there or it can decide there should be less money. It controls the amount of money in our economy, including in a very literal way. If you have any cash in your pocket right now, pull it out. You'll see the name right at the top of the bills, Federal Reserve Note. They're the ones who call up the Bureau of Engraving and Printing and say, print some more of the stuff. And here's where things get tricky, okay? Though the Federal Reserve does that, and though the Federal Reserve's chairman is appointed by the president, and though the Federal Reserve is subject to congressional oversight, and though the Federal Reserve's name includes the word federal, it is not actually part of the federal government. It's an independent institution. And you may remember presidents like Nixon wanting the Fed to do this or that, and the Fed chairman basically telling them to go take a hike. They're supposed to do what they think is best for the economy not what's best for the president's political future. With me so far? Okay. 
Since 2008, when the current financial crisis took hold, the Fed has done all kinds of things that central banks just don't do. Stuff the Fed has never done. Stuff that would have been unthinkable in the past. And it's all happening on a scale that is bigger than anything the Fed has ever tried in its history. Basically, the Fed has gone to central bank crazy town. And the danger, if the Fed screws up, is that the fiction that we call the U.S. dollar loses value, that people stop believing in it. Alex Bloomberg and David Kestenbaum are here to explain to us now two things, what the Fed usually does and what it's done since 2008 that seems so extreme. Up until recently, when the Federal Reserve did this dangerous and magical thing of creating money out of nothing, conjuring money out of the void, it happened in a kind of solemn ritual. The ritual goes like this. Every six weeks, in an ornate conference room inside the Federal Reserve Building in Washington, D.C., there's a meeting. The meeting is closed to the press, members of Congress. Even the president isn't allowed. The meeting is run by the chairman of the Fed, currently Ben Bernanke. You've heard his name in the news a lot. It is a meeting of the Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee. Even though major things are being, major policy issues are being decided, there's, it's, it's, uh, it's not an exciting experience. This is Gerald O'Driscoll Jr., who attended a couple of these meetings back in the 1990s when he was vice president of the Dallas Regional Federal Reserve. So at these meetings, all these Federal Reserve officials get up and make presentations about the economy. What are the bright spots? What are the weak spots? Are things getting better, worse, staying about the same? And then they take a vote to decide the big question. Should there be more or less money in the U.S. economy? Now, this question has huge ramifications. More money generally means it's easier for businesses and everyday people to get loans, which means it's easier for businesses to expand or new businesses to start up, which ultimately translates into more jobs and a better economy. But more money can also mean inflation, which, if it gets out of control, can really cripple the economy. Just ask the people of Brazil. So it is a balancing act, with the fate of the U.S. economy hinging on the Fed's decision. Not that anyone there acts that way, Again, Gerald O'Driscoll. It's almost ceremonial. Uh, there's an order in which the staff reports take place. The, the questioning is kind of uh, uh, orchestrated. Uh, so it's more like, ah, we're pulling the levers of the largest economy in, in the history yeah, of mankind. Yeah, you, but... you almost forget that that's what's happening until <laughs> they start to read the policy directive, which is exactly what they're going to do. Then, then you, you, you remind yourself what all this has been about. I sort of think of it like a joystick. You move it one, you know, you move it too far one direction, you get out of control inflation. You move it too far in the other direction, and, and then, you know, you can really sort of put the brakes on the, the economy. It, is that too simplistic a way of thinking about it, or is that... I mean, it's okay to think about it that way. I winced a little when you said that, because um, the, the joystick presumes a very precise control, which is exactly what they don't have. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's more like you're moving a a super tanker, and you start moving the wheel, and and there's no effect that you can see for quite a while. Okay, so once they've decided to move the super tanker, how exactly do they create money out of nothing? Well, the answer, the mechanics of how this works, are so weird and bizarre that when I first learned about it, I thought, wait, that's what this all comes down to. So they can't just create a whole bunch of money and then walk out to the street corner and start handing it out to people. That would be awkward, for one, and it also would take too long. They need to get large amounts of money into the economy fast. And so they need someone who can handle a few billion dollars in one quick transaction, which means the banking system, banks. And how do they get money into the bank's hands? They buy something from them. The most boring, safest, surest thing any bank owns 
bonds issued by the U.S. government, treasury bonds. Big banks typically have billions of dollars in treasury bonds just sitting around on their books. And to buy these bonds, the Fed doesn't show up at the door with an armored car full of cash. Don't don't picture that. You need to picture a computer screen at the Fed that shows the amount of money in a bank's account. Richard Zina is a senior vice president of the New York Fed, and he says someone at the Fed just changes that number, adds a few billion, clicks a mouse. And voila, money is created. Basically, you press a button, and in their account it says we have this much more money. And Yes. That seem weird to you at all after all these years? Uh, yes, it is still a magical process. All right, so the bank had a billion dollars worth of bonds, and now it has a billion in cash. What's the big deal? A billion's a billion, right? But banks don't like to sit on lots of cash. They want to lend it out and earn interest on it. That's what banks do. So the banks start lending that money out. And that is how this new money enters into the economy. So if I'm a bank, before maybe I'd loan my money out at 6%, now I got more money sitting around. I want to move it out the door fast, so I'll loan it out at a lower rate, maybe 4%. And this is why you're always hearing on the news the Fed lowered interest rates or raised interest rates. They did that through this process we just described, creating money out of nothing, buying or selling treasury bonds. Okay, so that's what the Fed did for decades, the boring, sober purchase or sale of boring, safe bonds. Now, to Fed crazy town. And the financial crisis. Starting in 2007, banks and firms up and down Wall Street were looking shaky. They had all these assets that were plunging in value, and they needed someone to lend them money to offset their losses and stay afloat. And it was around this time that Jim Cramer freaked out on television. Jim Cramer, you may know, is the host of Mad Money on CNBC. And here he is in August 2007, the very beginning of the subprime collapse, talking about the Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke. Actually, talking is probably the wrong word. Bernanke is being an academic. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. He has no idea. Kramer. I have talked to the heads of almost every single one of these firms in the last 72 hours, and he has no idea what it's like out there. None! My people have been in this game for 25 years, and they are losing their jobs, and these firms are going to go out of business, and he's nuts. They're nuts. They know nothing. Kramer. This is a different kind of market, and the Fed is asleep. So what Jim Cramer is saying in this very entertaining freakout is that the Fed should use its power to create money out of nothing in a way that we haven't talked about yet. In addition to the ceremonial meetings the Fed has every six weeks about the money supply, it also has these special emergency powers that it's only supposed to use in situations where the banking system is on the verge of collapse. And Cramer here is asking the Fed to use those powers to become what's called the lender of last resort. Specifically, he said this. Listen, open the darn Fed window. The darn Fed window. The Fed window is jargon for the Fed creating a bunch of money out of nothing and lending it to institutions in crisis who can't borrow money through the normal private market. Sort of like a bank window where you could walk up and get an emergency loan from a magical genie. This was a revolutionary proposal on several levels. A lot of these financial institutions that needed help were not traditional banks. And the Fed hadn't lent emergency money to something other than a boring, highly regulated bank for over half a century. But seven months after Kramer's tirade, though certainly not because of it, the Fed did just what he was suggesting. A dramatic story has broken this morning 
to the effect that J.P. Morgan and the New York Fed are combining to, in essence, bail out Bear Stearns. As the financial crisis unfolded, the Fed created over $1 trillion, which it lent out as emergency loans to all the big names on Wall Street, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, huge banks like Citigroup and Bank of America. The Fed lent money to private equity firms, hedge funds, and even to regular companies like Verizon, GE, and Harley-Davidson. And it wasn't just the recipients of that cash that were new. It was also what the Fed was acquiring in return, the collateral. In the past, in the rare instances that the Fed used its powers to serve as the lender of last resort, it demanded the highest quality collateral in return, assets that were safe and would hold their value. In other words, the Fed treated banks in financial trouble the same way a hard-nosed pawnbroker treats people in financial trouble. It would hold on to your grandmother's antique earrings and in return give you far less than they're worth. And if you bring in cheap plastic earrings, the Fed wouldn't give you any money at all. But in 2008, the Fed started accepting all sorts of cheap plastic jewelry, collateral that just months ago it never would have touched. For example, at one point in the crisis, the Fed acquired $75 billion worth of toxic assets from Bear Stearns and AIG. Our colleague Hannah Jaffe-Walt talked to Vincent Reinhardt, another former Fed official now at the American Enterprise Institute, about just how disturbingly unboring these assets were. There were mortgages on resort hotels. It's a grab bag. There's a lot of Hilton properties. The Hilton Hawaiian Village, the Hilton of Puerto Rico. Yeah. The the Maldives, by the way. The Maldives are on here, yeah. The Fed has a claim on a hotel in Jacksonville, Florida. So there, there is a mall in this portfolio that I believe has gone into bankruptcy. Okay. What's the name of it? Crossroads. Okay. Crossroads? Mm-hmm. Crossroads Mall in Oklahoma, actually, isn't it? Oh, real estate owned. Yeah, it owns it, right? REO, REO means real estate owned. So the Fed owns that mall? Yeah. So the Fed is now in the, in the commercial yeah. shopping business? Yeah. <laughs> mind-bending, isn't it? <laughs> it is a little mind-bending. So actually, you, you should have the image of Chairman Ben Bernanke uh, flying to a speaking engagement. And he can look out the window and look down and say, boy, I own a piece of that, I own a piece of that, I own a piece of that. And that's the way the Fed's balance sheet is right now. And it didn't stop there. In late 2008, the economy was still in trouble, so the Fed launched another program which would become by far the biggest single purchase they'd ever made. They would be creating more money than ever before. But what were they going to buy with that money to get the money out into the economy? Well, what is there out there that adds up to hundreds of billions of dollars? Home mortgages. The Fed would buy home mortgages. Not the subprime ones that got us into trouble. This was not a plan to rid the banks of bad assets. They would be buying safe, high-quality mortgages, but they would be buying a lot of them in the form of mortgage-backed securities. The hope was this would inject a lot of new money into the economy and prop up the housing market. But how many to buy? That was the question. Vincent Reinhardt, the former Fed official, says that the Fed had no idea how many mortgages it would need to purchase to do all this. How much money should it create? They were working in the dark. It's not uh, Economic theory doesn't tell you how many securities you have to buy to have a predictable effect on interest rates, or activity. So they went. They picked a round number, a big round number. Do you imagine them actually sitting around saying, I don't know, 100 billion, 200, a trillion, <laughs> 700, <laughs> how about I, five? <laughs> I, I can imagine them sitting around in that big room, around a big table, 
uh, arguing um, in terms of round, in, in probably quarters of trillions. How about 250? No, how about 500? In the end, the number they settled on was massive, one and a quarter trillion dollars. Just a reminder, a trillion dollars is to a million dollars, what a million dollars is to one dollar. For some reason, that's hard for me to explain. I wanted to see the room where this happened, where the money gets made. It seemed like a long shot. The Fed is historically very media shy. It doesn't grant on-the-record interviews, much less tours. But this time, the Fed said okay. And so, one morning, Hannah Jaffe-Walt and I found ourselves at the southern tip of Manhattan, outside the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. It's a big, imposing building. The ironwork, the marble in the lobby all say, I am a big, imposing building. I am the central bank of the biggest economy in the history of the world. We still got a bunch of gold in the basement, and by bunch, I mean possibly the largest collection of gold anywhere. And then our guide, Nate Werfel, took us up to the room. So this is the mortgage-backed security uh, purchase program team room. It's a smallish room. There's only uh, It's not as big as you might think when you consider the size of the overall purchase program. Whatever you imagine the room looks like, where you can create one and a quarter trillion dollars, this is not it. It is not grand. It is not ornate. It is not ceremonial. It has four gray cubicles, it has computer screens, and there is no other way to say this, it's a mess. There are papers and notes scattered around, there is a yoga ball someone has been sitting on, and there is a basketball net, possibly Nerf brand. This is where the magic happens. Julie Ramache and her colleagues spent weeks and weeks and weeks in this room, buying and buying and buying. This, this program was big. It represents, you know, 20% of the outstanding agency mortgage-backed securities in the market. So, so it's big. You bought a fifth of what was out there. That's right. That's right. Can I ask a kind of weird question, but I know it's one everyone's going to ask? Where does the money come from? It's created, right? It's, so that's the nature of central banking, right? So central banks, when we actually purchase a security, we pay, pay for it with cash that is basically created by the central bank. That's the nature of central banking around the world. The sheer amount of new money that the Fed created was unprecedented. From the time we went off the gold standard in 1933 until 2008, the Fed had created a net total of $800 billion. In the months after the financial crisis, that number nearly tripled to almost $2.4 trillion. Julie and her colleagues were spending more newly created money in just 15 months than the Fed had created in its entire history up until 2008. Hey, fellas. Hey, hey, Ira. Hey. What are, you, what are you doing here? We're doing a radio story. Well, I know. I know. I'm actually, I've been listening, and it's fascinating, of course, and excellent story, as always. But I have some questions. For starters, you're saying that the Fed created over a trillion dollars to bail out the economy. Does that money get added to the deficit? No, it, it doesn't. Why not? The federal deficit, that's when the federal government spends more money than it collects in taxes. So it has to borrow to cover the difference. That's what the deficit is, that borrowing. And the Fed is, as you said in your intro, a totally separate institution. It's not part of the federal government. So it has nothing to do with this. Okay, but when the Fed loses money on some mall that it now owns, does that eventually in some sneaky backdoor way come out of my taxes? Uh, No, because first of all, it's not part of the government. Second of all, even if it were, every year the Fed makes a profit. 
the Fed never loses money. It, it can create money out of thin air from nowhere. It uses that to buy government bonds, things that pay interest. So it gets interest every year. And every year it makes a huge profit. Like in 2009, at the height of the crisis, it made $47 billion. And, and that profit, they always turn over to the federal government. So, so that actually reduces the deficit. And so all of this money that they have created since 2008, totaling it up, if I understand right, it's over $1.6 trillion. Does this have anything to do with the TARP program to buy up toxic assets? No, that was the federal government. Does it have anything to do with Obama's stimulus package? Uh, no, federal government. But this $1.6 trillion is bigger than both of those combined, right? Like we have these huge fights that drag on for weeks over the stimulus package and over these other things. And then the Fed does something that dwarfs these in size. It's twice as big as either of those programs. And there's no discussion. The Congress doesn't debate it. The president doesn't approve it. There's no public input. Some eggheads in a room just kind of wave a wand and then it just happens. Yep. That's that's the idea of a central bank. So, okay, is that a good thing? It depends who you talk to. Most economists would say, thank God the Fed did this. Thank God the Fed used its superpower to create money out of thin air and lent that money to Harley-Davidson and Goldman Sachs and you and me to buy houses and Bear Stearns in exchange for that mall in Oklahoma. Doing all that crazy crap, that kept us out of soup lines. And the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke, says that because of the Fed's actions, quote, the world was spared a cataclysm that could have rivaled or surpassed the Great Depression. And Bernanke is actually one of the leading scholars on the economics of the Great Depression. And he says, in fact, that the Great Depression happened in large part because the Fed back then wasn't crazy enough. Or as he put it, they were, quote, insufficiently willing to challenge the orthodoxies of their day. Alan Blinder is in this camp. He's an economist at Princeton and the former vice chairman of the Fed. And he says he's glad Bernanke was willing to challenge the orthodoxy of our day, to take the Fed to crazy town. Oh, I think but that is a very good thing that that happened. These very, very unusual things that the Fed did are things that are either never going to be repeated again in your lifetime or if they are, it'll probably be a long time from now. This is not going to be part of the Fed's – once we get back to normal, this is not going to be part of the Fed's everyday way of doing business. We will go back to the boring thing of creating or destroying money by buying or selling treasury bills. There's a bunch of people who disagree with Alan Blinder on this, though, and we're going to be hearing a lot from them in the coming months. Maybe you've followed some of the news about how three-quarters of the House of Representatives, Democrats and Republicans alike, voted for more scrutiny of the Fed. That happened because of this guy. Gentleman, Texas, Mr. Paul, for three minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank you for uh, calling this hearing. Ron Paul, the libertarian-leaning Republican congressman from Texas, is the go-to guy in Congress if you're looking for someone to criticize the Federal Reserve. The question we in the Congress have to ask is, why is it that the Congress is uh, so eager to give up their prerogatives and their responsibilities, whether it's giving the executive branch the authority to go to war without the Congress saying much, or whether it's turning over the monetary system to somebody that can operate essentially in secrecy and deal not with a few hundred billion dollars, like $800 billion here and there, but trillions of dollars when it adds up. For decades, and, Paul uh, has been on a campaign to, to abolish the Federal little. Reserve, so and it was a lonely campaign. But with the Republicans taking over the House of Representatives, Ron Paul, author of a book called End the Fed, is now the head of the committee which oversees the Fed. And the main beef that he and lots of people have with the Fed is that 
it's unclear the Fed really knows what it's doing. The U.S. economy, they say, is too big and too complex to be managed by a group of PhDs who meet every six weeks, no matter how smart they are. By trying to manage something that can't be managed, the Fed does more damage to the economy than good. One of the leading critics of the Fed, an economist named George Selgin, says the Fed is like a fireman who gets credit for putting out fires that he helped start. And Selgin has a point. Take our current recession. Even if you grant that the Fed helped get us out of it, most economists, and not just Fed critics, say that it was Fed actions earlier in the decade, holding interest rates too low for too long, which helped create the housing bubble, which got us into this mess in the first place. So today, the Fed is in uncharted territory. Instead of making little movements to the supertanker steering wheel, the Fed has spun it, leaving us all with two questions. What direction is the tanker going to go as a result? And do we trust the person at the helm? The Fed has created a huge, unprecedented amount of money, thrown it into the economy. Now, they have to figure out how to get it out before it causes inflation. The Fed has gone a little crazy. Once you go crazy, how do you get back to being boring? And trustworthy. Remember, the value of our money depends on that trust. Again, Vincent Reinhardt talking to our colleague Hannah Jaffe-Walt. Because you trust the Fed and because you know everybody else trusts the Fed, uh, it, it, is, it is valued in markets because other people value it. So really, that's, that's the biggest that's the thing trick. that the Fed has going for it. It's not the gold in the basement. It's not the marble floors. The most important thing to them is just that everyone trusts them. The magic of central banking is it works on trust. Once that trust is gone, the value of money goes away too. It becomes just another stone on the bottom of the ocean. The Fed knows this, of course, that the weirder they act, the more they throw the whole enterprise into question. And this explains one of the biggest mysteries of all about visiting the Fed, why everyone is so, so boring. Their public pronouncements are famous for bureaucratic inscrutability. And I mean, here they are creating trillions of dollars out of thin air, doing things that in the history of central banking have never been done before. And in all our dealings with them, they are, and you'll have to trust us on this, we'll spare you the tape, studiously going out of their way to be as unexciting as possible. Case in point, remember the mortgage-backed security program, one and a quarter trillion dollars? That number was essentially pulled out of thin air. And yet... Once the Fed officials in charge of purchasing those securities were given the number, they hit it exactly. Well, almost. Uh, I think we fell short by like... Uh, 61 cents short, yeah. something. Pennies? 61 cents. What? Seriously. No way. <laughs> 1.25 trillion you got within how much? We got very, very close uh, to the actual 1.25 trillion. I, I do think we were within pennies of the final uh, charge. We didn't want to go over 1.25 trillion because 1.25 trillion uh, was our mandate. We don't want to ever go beyond our, our mandate. Yeah, and so if we erred, we wanted to err on the shy side. Whether you like it or not, this is our system. Empower a secret society of PhDs with the ability to create trillions of dollars out of nothing and hope we can trust them to get it right and stay as boring as humanly possible. Alex Bloomberg and David Kestenbaum, they're both part of our Planet Money team, along with Hannah Jaffe-Wald and all the other reporters you've heard this hour. Their free podcast and their blog explain the stuff that all of us have never understood more entertainingly than seems fair. 
You can find all that at npr.org slash money. Who controls the British crown? Who keeps the metric system down? We do. We do. Who keeps Atlantis off the maps? Who keeps the Martians under wraps? We do. We do. Who holds back the electric car? Who makes the Gutenberg a star? Special thanks today to George Selgin, Russ Roberts, and Abdul Franklin. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WBEZ Management Oversight for our show by our boss, Mr. Tori Malatia, who can get, I have to say, pretty irate when I don't dress warmly enough for the snowstorms we've been getting lately. I overheard him in the hallway yesterday when I didn't bring a scarf. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. He has no idea. None. I'm Eric Glass. Back next week with more stories of This American Life. Get my feet wet, no, I am no Madonna Though I'm still emerging, I feel like a virgin I love nice things, so I am into splurging One life to live, tomorrow ain't for certain You're my understudy, you need to put work in So I start a show until they close curtains yeah. Me, I'm making money, me, I'm making money Me, I'm making money, me, I'm, me, I'm making money Dollar, dollar bills, dollar, dollar, dollar bills, y'all Dollar, dollar bills, dollar, dollar, dollar bills, And that's why my outfit match my new whip And that's why the new Store veggie. I am fresh out the deli daily. 20 plus years, I'm a product of the 80s. That's why they love me. That's why you hate me. We can talk money, but how much can you make me? Probably not a dime. You ain't got to say to me. Vegas money, homie, I bet it all. I clean house like a week full of chores. Yeah, you got a jab, but you weak at the job. You need to think twice before you get injured. My infrared, you will infer. Plus, I get paper without printers. My money's so long that it gets so boring. Couldn't finish counting what I get off touring. Survival of the fit, theory of Charles Darwin. My flow so mobile, this is my calling. Me, I'm making money. Me, I'm making money. PRI Public Radio International.